0: Our sermon text, I'm going to invite you to stand with me as we read together Colossians 3, verses 12 through 17. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Amen. You may be seated.
1: Thank you, Matt. Um, as he said, we will be in Colossians 3, uh, verses 12 through 17. If y'all would, give me a second just to set up real quick. So this is going to be kind of a, uh, a part two to Matt's sermon last week. Um, if you guys haven't gotten the chance to listen to it, if you weren't here, I would encourage you to go online um, or download it. On uh, iTunes podcast, whatever it may be, but um, it was a great uh, sermon on exhorting us to put to death um, the things that that we used to walk in as unbelievers. Those who are in Christ, those who have been risen with Christ, he was encouraging us to to stop peddling around with these sins that that lead to death, um, and I. I kind of want to just piggyback on that this week and, and now Paul transitions from put to death what is old to now that you've been risen with Christ put on what is new put on the new self. And so I'm going to kind of jump into a pretty a pretty heavy illustration here. Um so I kind of want want you guys to brace yourselves for this. Um I don't want y'all to be kind of shocked and be like, "Oh wow, that was that was quick." Um but I do think it's important to kind of understand the historical context within within Paul's writing, within the, the Colossians, and how they would receive the letter. So what was going on in the culture during Paul's time? What was going on in his mind while he was writing these things? And so I think, I think it is helpful for us to understand something that was going on um, in the Roman Empire. And and we kind of already know this based off of, um, based off of the account of our, our Lord and his crucifixion. But the Romans were kind of, kind of proud about how perversely creative they could get with how they could execute people. Um, and one of those ways was actually uh, if they wanted to convict a, a murderer and wanted to punish them, um, one of the ways they would do that is if the person that they killed didn't have any family or um, friends that wanted to do anything with their body to preserve it or to bury it, um, what they would do is they would they would have the murderer literally put the body over their back, literally carry the dead body around. Um, there's, there are two reasons for it. Because one was they knew that even the strongest of men, after a while, whether it be 120 pounds or... 200 and something, however big the person is that they killed, it would eventually weigh them down. Uh, It would eventually cause them to get really tired, really weary, really quick. Um, And the other thing was, I think this might be more of what Paul had in mind, was that rotting corpse that that is on their shoulders, they're carrying around, will eventually give off different diseases, give off illnesses. And And the murderer would contract these diseases. And eventually, whether it be two weeks, a month, whatever it may be, they would eventually die because of this. And that was one of Rome's ways to to kill somebody, to punish them for murdering another person. And I think Paul's Paul's saying the same thing to us. He's saying, "Okay, since you have been risen with Christ, why are you still carrying around this dead person? Why are, you still, why are you still indulging in sexual immorality or, or still holding on to anger and malice and wrath? Things that, on account of these, God's wrath is coming. Things that will eventually kill you. Whether it be this week, next week, six years from now, eventually lead to death. He's saying, put it off. Take it off. And, and now he transitions into kind of like what Matt was saying. He said last week, it's, you know, it's going to be a heavy passage. Uh, this week's supposed to be a little bit lighter, supposed to encourage us. So I wanted to get the heavy stuff out of the way real quick. But kind of have that in the back of your minds as Paul's telling you to do these things. He says to put on the new self. And before we do that, before we get to the things that he's telling us to put on, I want us to kind of If you're a note taker, this would be a good time to write these notes down. I want you all to think about the three P's that uh, make up a Christian life. Um, The first P is going to be position. So you're positionally in Christ. The second P, as Paul's going to lay out here, is your practice. okay, And what you do with that position. And the third P is going to be praise or proclamation, however you want to split that up, praise or proclamation. So let's start off with the first P in position in verse 12. Um, And I want you all to see kind of the logic in Paul's argument here. He lists all these different kinds of people in verse 11. What does he say? He says, um, here there is, here as in being in Christ, being renewed in the knowledge of the image of its creator, here There is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free. And he says something very important. But Christ is all and is in all. So put on therefore. So that's the therefore. is Since there is no distinction between one race and another. There is no distinction between one culture and another. There is no distinction between one language and another. Christ is all and in all. He has died for all. That, may, that someone from every tribe, every tongue, every nation may come to know him. So, so don't, don't create this this social status of, oh, because I am this, I am greater than this person because they're that. Christ is all and in all. He says, you see, Jesus was, was the epitome of humanity. Jesus is what a human being ought to be. Jesus, Paul says in Romans, is the second Adam, the first Adam has fallen, and because of his fall, we all are fallen creatures. But Jesus is what a human should be. So because of that, put on the things of Christ. And it's interesting, he, the things that he, that he first says here, says, put on then... And he says three very distinct terms. Okay, So there's no distinction between Jew or Gentile. There's no distinction between slave or free. And then he goes on to say, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. These three terms, the chosen ones, the beloved and holy, were three distinct and very unique terms that God used for his people in the Old Testament wasn't used for anybody else. God never, never communicated that another nation was his chosen nation. He never communicated that another nation was his beloved nation. He never communicated that another nation was his holy nation. But Christ comes in, and now he brings salvation to you and me. It's this beautiful picture of, look, guys, just because you're a Jew doesn't mean that you're closer to God than the Gentiles. And Gentiles don't feel inferior to the Jews. He says, Christ is all and is in all. So in in one sense, he's shattering this false exclusivity of the Jews in the first century while simultaneously comforting those who are uncircumcised, barbarians, Scythians, slaves, or free, but not Jews. And he's comforting them with the love of Christ says there's no distinction between another human being or one human being and another human being. But there is a distinction in the spiritually dead and the spiritually alive. Okay, So either you are spiritually dead or you are spiritually alive. And he's saying, which, which one are you? This is the question that we need to ask ourselves. Which, which one am I? And you say, well, I'm spiritually alive. I mean, of course, I believe in Christ. I believe that Jesus is God. Well, that's good. I, I hope you do. And if you don't, I'd love to talk to you and hopefully, by the power of the Spirit, convince you otherwise. But that's, that's not enough. James, James says, James, the brother of Jesus says okay that's good you believe that Jesus is lord you believe that Jesus is god even the demons believe that and they they do you one better they shudder in awe and fear of the fact that Jesus is god so he says okay well then then how do i show that that Jesus is my lord how do i how do I show that I am alive in Christ? And, and I don't want you all to take from this that, you know, I'm advocating for this works-based um, salvation. I'm not advocating that, you know, you need to do these things in order to consider yourself a Christian. That's not it at all. But what I am advocating is that your position be reflected in your practice. If you have been risen with Christ, then act like it. If you've been risen with Christ, then why are you still holding on to what is dead? Let your practice reflect your position. Paul's saying, put it off. Put off what is old. And he goes on to say, put on the new self with a compassionate heart, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Another historical background I think is important. Um, compassion was virtually non-existent in the in the Roman world. Um, what they would do is with you know with weak lame mentally handicapped elderly or, or deformed people instead of instead of caring for them and and bringing them into their inner courts they would ban them from their inner courts and make them stay out in the outer walls and say fend for yourselves because if you can't fend for yourselves then you have you have no right to be with us. There is no compassion, and there is no care whatsoever. But you see, Christ was completely countercultural, wasn't he? During his ministry, he regularly associated himself with the outcast of society. He took care of, of the widows. He took, he took heed to those who were blind. He would heal them, allow them to see. He would... He would allow the deaf to hear. He would cleanse the lepers. He would allow the lame to walk. Jesus took care and compassion for those who whom didn't have any compassion on them, who nobody else would look to. And even, even whenever he was on the cross, what did he say to John? He said, John, look after my mom as she ages. Jesus was the epitome of compassion. He had a compassionate heart, and that that compassion was coupled with his kindness, okay? Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. He said, for my yoke is what? It's easy, and my burden is light, that same word there, my yoke, is easy. That word easy is the same word right here in uh, chapter, or in verse 12 that's translated kindness. What Jesus is saying is that, that my yoke is one of kindness, gentleness, and ease. He said, cast your burdens off and take my kindness. Take what I have to offer. I, I don't want you to carry this heavy burden around. Jesus was known for his compassion and his kindness. Are you? Am I? If we identify ourselves with Christ, then are we compassionate? Are we kind to one another? No one has ever been compassionate or kind without also being humble and meek. Go hand in hand you know like i said compassion was a foreign concept in in the roman culture well humility was even more so okay humility was so so foreign that they actually didn't have a word for it in their language there was no word for humility the reason why is because they associated Humility with humiliation. They said, "Well, if, if you're humiliated by someone, then then they're showing much stronger than you are. You're seen as the weaker person, and it's something that you don't want to be. It's something that's very non-desirable in our culture." But Jesus again was countercultural, and humility and meekness is, is kind of one. And the same, and you say, well meekness that's, that's not usually used that often, like yeah, we should be humble, but people don't really say, you know I'm just trying to be more meek this week, you know like that's just not the language that we t- that we usually use, um, but meekness it can be defined as as literally a control of strength, a controlling of what is there, okay, so meekness if if you think about it in this context, Andre and I were, um, we, we saw a Facebook video pop up a couple weeks ago of this guy, I don't know if y'all have heard about him, but he he's, goes by like the name of Mountain. Um, and he has like set the world record for the heaviest deadlift of all time. And I mean, it was like plates, like way at the end of that. I mean, it was just unbelievable. I don't know how the bar, could hold that much weight, but it was like 1,300 pounds or something like that, right? And all a deadlift is is like you're keeping your like front leg straight. Anyways, you're just picking it up and putting it down, right? So um, the heaviest deadlift ever, he did it, right? This guy is—he lives up to his name. He looks like a mountain. He's like six eight, like 400 and something pounds of just pure muscle, right? This is the strongest man in the world. Now, imagine him having a newborn child and tenderly patting that child on the back to get it to birth, right? Like this, this simple task. But this man has so much strength and so much power, and he has this ability to do so much harm, but instead he's gently aiding the child. He's controlling that power. That's meekness. And we see, we see Jesus display this. Um, we see Jesus allow Judas to come and kiss him on the cheek and identify him as the one that needs to be arrested. He, we see that in, in allowing the soldiers, the soldiers to shackle him and bring him to the Pharisees to be tried in the middle of the night where nobody can give a defense on his account. And then we see him in that trial being spit on, mocked, and having false claims thrown at him, saying Jesus did this, this, and this, and Jesus didn't say a word. Because he knew that he spoke with such power and such authority that if he gave a defense, they would not be able to contain him. If he gave a defense, he would not be put on the cross. If he isn't put on the cross, then he won't forgive us. So we see this meekness in Jesus. And Paul says that Jesus is the essence of humility. And humility is a complete refusal of one's rights. Humility is a complete refusal of one's rights. Now, I'm not saying that there's not like basic human rights that society needs to live by. I'm not saying that we, need, that we don't need to uphold some type of dignity within humanity. I think we should. Um, But I get this definition from Philippians chapter 2, whenever Paul says, look to Jesus if you want to know how to be humble. See, Jesus was equal to God the Father. Jesus was sitting in his throne in heaven and didn't count equality with God to be something to be grasped. Instead, he came down in his humility to take the form of a servant so that... He could show meekness. He could show humility. He could show kindness. He could show compassion. He could show patience with us, and ultimately so that he could forgive us. So we see in the first part of of this verse of one who you are in Christ. You are God's chosen ones, you're holy and beloved. And he says to put on these things, to have a compassionate heart. Kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, and these are, all, these are all actions that we initiate, right? They're either an inner, an inner reality or an action that we initiate. So then what about if somebody doesn't act that way towards me? What about if a believer or a non-believer does wrong to us? What then? You see, not only should our actions and our practice relate to our position, but our reactions should as well. He transitions into this with the with word patience right here. And put on patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. You see, forgiveness is an outward expression of the new self. Sorry. (laughs) Forgiveness is the outward expression of the new self. So if you have a compassionate heart, how how are people going to see that compassion? Well, they're going to see it in whether or not you forgive one another readily. How are they going to see your kindness and the way that you interact with one another? By how you forgive a wrongdoing. How are they going to see meekness and humility, counting somebody else's else's rights higher than your own by the way in which you forgive them. See, the kindness of Christ is shown in the fact that he absorbed your burden of sin and he took it to the grave and he he left it there so that you no longer had to carry your dead man around with you. you. See, Christ, as he was carrying the cross up the mountain, what he was doing was he was carrying your dead man and whenever he went to the top of the mountain and was crucified, he was killing that dead man. He was killing the sin. You see, Jesus died for our sins and he was, ro- he was risen for our good works. Okay, So he's empowering us with the Holy Spirit now that he's resurrected because we are resurrected with him. And this God who we've cosmically offended, there's there's no way that we could ever possibly repay him. This God comes down in humility to die on our behalf so that we might be forgiven. So I ask you, I ask myself, who who are we to withhold forgiveness from one another? If there's an offense that has been made against you in the past week, why haven't you forgiven that person in the past month, the past year, the past 10 years, or even more? Why are you holding on to this dead person? Why are you holding on to anger, wrath, and malice against one another? If Christ has forgiven you, Paul doesn't say, hey, you ought, you ought to forgive one another because Christ has forgiven you. He says, you must. It's a, it's a required thing of you. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying, you know, this is just an easy thing to do. I understand heartache and I understand pain. Although I'm young and I have a lot more pain and heartache to experience, um, I, I want to kind of tread lightly in this subject because a lot of you here have been wrong in ways that I can't even imagine. Um, and I don't mean to just tell you, just forgive them and like forget it, like just get over it. That's not what I'm saying. I, I think there, I think there's, you know, there's pain that needs to be dealt with. There's discussions that need to be had. But ultimately, your goal is forgiveness. If you claim to be forgiven by Christ, then you have no right not to pursue forgiveness of one another. You must. Forgive. Why? Well, because one, Christ has forgiven you, and two, because if you have put on this new Christ, this new life, then you have this love. You have this love that enables you to do all these things. You're able to, to be compassionate towards those people who you've never really thought about. You're able to to be kind to one another. Whenever somebody does does you wrong, you're able to forgive them. Because of love. Love puts all of it together. He says that it's it's like this piece of clothing that binds everything else together. And we don't really have this idea in our, you know, our culture. Um, Not too much, anyways, because we have things like Nike dry fits, right? They fit to our form. Um, We have have pants that are elastic that we wear during Thanksgiving because, you know, it can still fit us regardless of how much we eat. Um, And then it can fit us in February whenever we give up our New Year's resolution. And we've lost a little bit of weight, but whatever. Um, I've been there, done that. They still fit. See, this this idea, it doesn't really make sense to us, but back in their day, another thing with the historical context is they basically had what we would think of like a nightgown, right? Everybody, like guys were wearing these things that it's basically just a cloth that had a hole at the bottom of it so your feet can go down and then it had a hole on each arm and then a hole for your head, right? Just this cloth that's just kind of swaying. So if you went back and forth like this, Nobody knows what's going to happen with the bottom side. Like it needs to be controlled, right? You got to put something on it, right? So what they would do is they would either tie a rope around their waist, or they would have some type of sash that they would um, that they would put over their shoulder and then tie that around their waist. And what Paul's saying is that that is what love is. Saying without love, then nothing else really has a function. Like. So what you have a piece of cloth over you, it's not going to cover you up whenever you're running, right? Well, if you put on love, then it binds it all together in perfect harmony. And this this is this communal idea that, that Matt was talking about with our sanctification, is, is that love it brings everybody together in this perfect harmony. Now I'm not saying that, again, that you're not going to act or react wrongly in a given situation. You might. But love is the only thing that's going to be able to empower you to forgive that wrongdoing. Love is the thing that brought Christ to us. So we've seen our position. We've seen that we are God's chosen ones. We've seen that we are holy and we are beloved. This is a position, right? And then we've seen our calling to, to... put on these things to have our practice reflect our position. And now, lastly, to the third and final P, that is praise. You see, praise is the result of a converted heart. You see, this love is given to us once the Holy Spirit regenerates our heart, right? But love is something that we feed. Love is something that we feed with praise, with God's word, with allowing the peace of Christ to to rule our lives, this is how we feed it. And you say, well, okay, but I see in in verse, let's see here, I'm sorry, verse uh, 16, says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart. Okay. Something that has become kind of pervasive uh, amongst the the Christian culture, amongst churches, um, I wouldn't necessarily say ours, but amongst churches in our area and and just kind of around our nation and I kind of again, want to tread lightly here because I don't mean to like offend a whole group of people who are into this music or whatever. Um, but it's this idea of worship is just an experience for ourselves. It's the idea that worship is is this thing that that we're being entertained with, right? That praise is something not for God, but it's for us. And Andrea and I, again, we maybe spend too much time on Facebook, but, um, <laughs> but we came across these lyrics of uh, a, a popular group. I'm not going to say their name, but if you all want to ask me later, I'll give, them, I'll give you their name. Um, but there, the lyrics, we read the lyrics before we listened to the song. The lyrics was essentially three words. It was it was like earth, fire, and like stone, right? Or something like that. And, and we're like, what in the world? Like, this is a praise band? Like, what are you talking about? Um, and then we're like, how can this be turned into a worship song? And then we listened to the song, and it sounded really good. Like, really, really good. Um, and And it made sense why people would use this in like a worship set or anything like that. But it had... It had no meat to it whatsoever. You see, there's this false concept that's rooted in a biblical truth of we just want our worship to be spirit-filled, right? We've, we pray that our worship will be spirit-filled. And yes, we want it to be spirit-filled. Absolutely. But at the same time, the spirit will never be, will never be void of the word of God. So they get this concept of, hey, we just want to be spirit-filled. And then it turns into this this mystical, feelings-oriented idea. And it's completely contrary to Scripture. And they get this idea from Ephesians 5, 18 through 19. Again, spirit-filled is biblical. It says, uh, do not become drunk with much wine, but instead be filled with the Spirit. And then it goes on to say, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So what he's equating here, this is the same author, Paul of each Ephesians and Colossians, is saying the same thing. He's saying, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, uh, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So what he's equating here is, if you're filled with the Spirit, if this is your desire to be filled with the Spirit, then you must be saturated with the Word of God. I, something that I think is, is going the wrong direction in our Christian community and just the evangelical mindset is that you know we have everything at, the, at our fingertips, right? If we think that there's this passage somewhere in the Bible, we could just look it up and, and kind of confirm that and then share that passage, right? And the, the lost art, the lost practice of memorizing Scripture. Guys, Scripture memorization is not in order for you to impress somebody with, oh, I know where that's at. That's in, you know, wherever. Wherever. It's, it's not this idea of you flexing your intellectual knowledge. It's this idea of Scripture impacting yourself. We memorize Scripture. We commit it to our hearts. We saturate ourselves with the Word of God so that we can be changed, so that we can put on kindness, compassion, love, meekness, patience. That we can love one another and we can forgive one another. You see, Jesus in in Luke chapter 4, it says that Jesus being filled with the Holy Spirit was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And what did Jesus do in the wilderness? It wasn't this, he didn't have a fog machine, he didn't have lights, he didn't have, you know, this awesome band playing for him. Him being filled with the Spirit resulted in him avoiding and, and attacking temptation with the Word of God. If you want to be filled with the Spirit, be filled with Scripture. Let it, let it dwell within you. Charles Spurgeon says that, that it's good to visit many good books. It's good to read. Um, and he said, but, but live in Scripture. Have your dwelling in Scripture. May it dwell inside of your heart. And that's, that's where the peace of God comes. It's like this, it's like this spiritual life, um, like the circle of spiritual life, right? Where, where you have been chosen, you are holy, you are beloved. And so now because of this, you're going to forgive one another, you're going to love one another, you're going to be all these things with one another. And then you're going to be thankful to God for, for giving you this salvation, for choosing you to be a part of his elect. And then it's just this continual thing. In your thankfulness, you're reminding yourself of what God has done for you. And then you're reminded, oh yeah, because God has forgiven me, I should forgive one another. Let the peace of Christ dwell in you richly. And then that, that results in being able to do everything in the name of Christ, whatever you do, do it all in the name of Christ. It enables us to live for Christ. And I want to want to leave you uh, with a quote uh, from a Dr. A. J. Gordon. Uh, he was named after the great Baptist missionary, Adoniram Judson. Um, he was not him, but he was named after him, and and said this quote a few, I think it was like a century later from Judson's life, but. He says this, and I think, it, I think it gives us a good illustration of, uh, of everything that we've looked at in the past two weeks here. Um, he says, I have seen in the autumn, when the trees have shed their leaves, that, that two or three leaves have stuck fast on the branches, and they've, they've clung to them through all the storms of winter. This tree with the dying leaves, some some leaves kind of stick around right he says but here's the good news this is putting on the new life he says but when the spring has come and the sap has begun to ascend the leaves have disappeared they're pushed off by the rising tide of new life may you and i be like a spring tree May the newness of life push off what is old and put on leaves of compassion and kindness so that whoever has a heavy burden may dwell underneath it and find shade. May our branches be strong and meek. May the trunk be made up of love for God and for one another. And and may we be rooted in the word of Christ. This, this will enable us to forgive one another as Christ has forgiven us and, and our fruit will be a fruit of forgiveness. <laughs> Every week here at uh, Midlands, we take communion um, and it's it's a, a family meal. It's, it's for those that That in verse 12, you know, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, those of you who would say that you are that, this meal is for you. Um, But God also says not to take this meal lightly. If a brother has an offense uh, or has offended you, you need to make that right before you approach the table. Um, For those of us, or those of you who, who have not put your trust in Christ, Who do not consider yourself a Christian, um, we would ask that you would uh, refrain from going to the table just because this is a family meal, and if if you haven't put your trust in Christ, then what you'd be doing is you'd bring more judgment on yourself. Um, And if you have questions about salvation and how that looks, what that looks like, um, I would be happy to talk to you. Elders would be happy to talk to you about that. But again, for those of you who are in Christ, before we go to the table, may we reflect on those who have done us wrong and have we forgiven them? If not, then may I challenge you not to go to the table today until you have forgiven one another. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Lord, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you first loved us so that, you, that we could love you. Um, Lord, we thank you for your son, and we thank you for the example that he has given us. We thank you that in any area of the Christian life that we're kind of hazy on, we don't know what that actually looks like. We thank you that, that you have told us to look to your son. May we put on the things of Christ. And may we not have anything to do with the things that you have killed on the cross. May we not have anything to do with anger, wrath, malice, any type of impurity, any type of idolatry. Lord, may our hearts belong to you. Lord, we love you. And we thank you for your word. pray this all in your son's name. Amen.